We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about them. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. Thanks for listening in. Today, our guest is Jeff Green, Chief of Cyber Response and Policy on the National Security Council. Prior to the NSC, he served as the Director of NIST's National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence, uh, the Vice President of Global Government Affairs and Policy at Symantec, and as a Senior Counsel to the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee where he worked on some of the original cyber legislation a decade ago. So, Jeff, great to have you on. You're yeah. coming to the end of your time at the NSC. Why don't you tell us what some of the highlights were? The past 15 months has been a long couple of years is the way we joke about it. But first, I, I've been told I need to say that I am speaking today in my personal capacity. So I just want to get that on the record. For me, I think... I kind of break the year down into a couple of different chunks. The first few months after I started, there was a couple of folks working on the cyber executive order, the one for what became executive order 14028 when I joined, but I was, I was put in charge of that. So that was interesting and very intense effort to, to get that out, to coordinate it with the government, to make, within the government, to make sure that private sector had some thoughts on it. And then almost immediately, the, you may have said I was in charge of the defensive efforts at the NSC. We'd been working on ransomware, but then when Colonial happened, followed by JBS, by Kaseya, so right around the time of, of Colonial, I don't remember the exact timing, they rolled the ransomware coordination out of the White House over to me, and that was, you know, the president was focused on it. So that was a very intense period, making sure that, that we were shifting our focus across the government towards disruption. You know, it's still important to investigate, et cetera, but we wanted to see what we could do to try to, for lack of a better phrase, throw some sand in the gears of the criminal organizations. And then in the fall, we started ramping up for the potential Russia's further invasion of Ukraine. And I feel like from some point, well, before Thanksgiving up through March or so, the world is a big blur because that was just a really intense time period. So I don't know that I would use the word highlights in particular to talk about the <laughs> ransomware and the Ukraine work. It was certainly exciting and interesting. And at some point, I hope to be rested enough to, to look back and reflect on it. But I mean, probably the single biggest thing I think we did that's going to have a lasting impact is 14028, because I think that has shifted both the mindset and the way a lot of organizations and, and companies are going to operate and develop software and secure their systems. Give us a sort of overview of 14208. I mean, what are the highlights for you? What are the hard parts that are going to take a while to implement? Or is the whole thing the hard part? The, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, when the president signed it and, and we were celebrating, having a little toast in the office, at one point, I don't can't remember who, me or uh, Ranga Kahangama or someone said, okay, now the hard part starts, which is implementation. And there are a couple of key pieces of it. We really looked at... at recent incidents and what we could learn and how we could adapt. You know, the, the administration came in right on the heels of solar winds. When I came in, we were still dealing with it. There was still 
response work going on, but there was a lot of lesson learned activity. But, you know, when my boss, DNSA Newberger, took over and some of the folks on the team carried over, they were still living with the actual intrusion uh, of solar winds and, and, and getting their mind around it. So that informed it. So we thought we knew we had to secure the federal network. But Anne's perspective, which is, I think, an excellent one, is we have to look beyond that. How do we get at the root causes of this? And the approach we took and we, we've talked about elsewhere is this need to, to shift our mindset. I think over the past years or decades, and Jim, you've probably seen it happen since you've been doing this as long as anyone I know, we've kind of come to a position where we accept that we are always going to be in a response mode. And that may be true, but we also need to focus uh, again on prevention and long-term prevention, not just the endpoint detection response tools and, and vulnerability management. That's all important, but what are the core things that are, are causing these problems? So, you know, three things I'd highlight in 14028. First is securing the federal networks, strong emphasis on endpoint detection response, which I mentioned, making sure we're getting encryption and multi-factor authentication in place across the federal network. Logging, you know, it was one of the real difficult challenges after solar winds was getting our minds around what actually had happened. And better logging is, is key to making that happen. So securing the federal enterprise was part one. Part two was looking at why these things are happening. And that's where the software vulnerability piece came in. It's section four of the executive order. And the short version of that was requiring any vendor that wants the privilege of selling their products to the federal government to meet certain baseline secure software development processes. Now, we recognized early on, I come from NIST. NIST is very focused on public-private collaboration. We recognized early on that this had to be a public-private effort. So NIST ran a process after the executive order was signed to identify best practices, and that's going to be an ongoing thing. But as of March of this past year, vendors that sell software to the federal government have to be following an accepted set of secure software development practices. OMB has been working hard on what exact form that attestation will take, and that will be forthcoming. But the bottom line is that as of March, you're going to have to be able to affirm to the government that you've been following some set of secure practices. And then the third piece is really learning from our errors, and that's where the Cybersecurity Review Board comes to comes into play. Uh, and that was stood up by CISA. I think the first report is well on its way to coming out. But the idea there is to, to do two things. First, learn from prior incidents. And second, improve the board as it goes. So, so we didn't want to take a year to build and study and how best to do a cybersecurity review board. We wanted to stand one up, have it do some work, learn what worked there and what didn't work there at the same time as we're learning what did and didn't work on the security side. So one of the things that I like about the executive order, maybe you can talk about it a little, is that the attestation, it's a self-certification. There's not going to be some outside reviewer opining on whether you have or have not met things. Is that right? Are you guys going for self-certification or what? Essentially, that's how it's going to be. Uh, you know, the OMB and the federal CISA's office are working on that right now. But, you know, we, and I personally having, you know, spent time in the private sector and on the Hill, didn't want to create a cottage industry of attesters and certifiers. And companies know what they, what they need to do. 
And companies also understand the the legal import of certifying something to the federal government. Before I ever got into cybersecurity, I was a lawyer in private practice and spent eight or nine years working on False Claims Act cases. So from my perspective, if you're certifying either directly or implicitly that you've met these standards and you didn't knowingly, you're bringing on a ton of liability. And I think most companies are going to understand that. And I believe are going to put the effort in that they need to, to make sure that they're doing the things that we require. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's when you compare it to some of the other efforts, I think that's uh, both here and in the European Union, I think that's a big, big difference. One of the issues that came up in the executive order, and I still think is poking around, is the balance between mandatory and voluntary, the balance between requiring people to do things and suggesting that they do things. And the EO has a nice balance because it's like, you don't have to sell to the federal government, but if you do, right? But where where would you put the line right now on mandatory versus voluntary? And we've talked about this before, how we might need to move in a mandatory direction a little more than we have. Yeah, I mean, within the executive order, it is obviously mandatory for the federal government. Federal agencies have to do what the president directs them to do. And the the EO was built with some flexibility. There's some things that are just going to be impossible on a time frame given specific circumstances. And, and there are ways to work within the the EO and the, and the, and the government on that. But you know, as you know, Jim, an executive order can't go further than existing law. So we could not, it has to be based on authority, whether in law or the constitution. So we couldn't put mandates on the private sector that, that were not statutory grounded. And we didn't want to because, you know, we were trying to get something significant out relatively quickly. Anne's phrase was aggressive, but achievable. We were definitely aggressive with both the the reach and the deadlines, and I think mostly achievable, and we're not will adjust. It really, what we tried to do with respect to improving software security with regard to the executive order is harness the purchasing power of the federal government. As you said, you don't have to sell to the government, but you know, I think back to when I was on the Hill in 9, 10, 11, and 12 working on cyber legislation, and there was a lot of pushback about the government having standards, the government wanting to understand the security of companies. And, and I would look at some of my you know, colleagues in the private sector and say, well, you want to know before you buy something, whether it is built right or secure. And they're like, well, of course, we would never buy anything. And I said, so why can't the government as a purchaser do the same thing? And frankly, my personal view, never heard a good answer. And that really is the intent behind the EO. But shifting over to the other half of your question, I think as we look at critical infrastructure and where we are in terms of security, I've been at this for almost 15 years. And, you know, my view, we've given a almost entirely voluntary approach a good shot. We had President Obama's executive order 13636. We had the NIST cybersecurity framework, which I think did a ton of, of, of work improving security, uh, making it easier to communicate. But if you look at where we are and the type of of attacks we had and the way some of these major attacks went down, the ransomware attacks through single passwords, no multi-factor authentication, the voluntary approach and the market are not driving security as we, and I think as the government, my view again, is we the government and as we as Americans have a right to expect. 
So within the administration, one of the things that we did was look at what authorities we have to try to set some cybersecurity baselines. And, and you saw some of that with the TSA security directives that came out after Colonial Pipeline. One of the great things that TSA did there was they got them together very quickly, but then they sat down with industry afterward and took a lot of feedback and made adjustments. I know personally that the TSA administrator, Pekoski, spent a lot of time listening to concerns from companies and making adjustments. So we acted, but we also listened. Leading up to Russia's further invasion of Ukraine, we looked again very closely at where can we drive security? How can we do it in the short term? And the authorities, frankly, are limited for the government to set baselines. And also the reality was in that time frame, we weren't going to make major changes. No one's going to fully revamp their security in a major organization in a matter of weeks. But you know, the administration definitely looked at whether we have enough authorities, and we've talked about it in, internally and publicly that, that you know, we think the government has an obligation to ensure that the critical infrastructure on which we all depend has some baseline security in place. So you'll need congressional help on a lot of it, but we also looked at what we could do, and we're still looking at what we can do under existing authorities to try to influence the market, I guess I would say. You know, I've never been a fan of the phrase, the market failed, because the market, in my view, doesn't succeed or fail. It does what it does. And it is not driving security the way we all hope it would. So the government has levers that it can move. And, and we're looking at how we can try to, to use those levers to shift the market to push security a little more prominently. So I wasn't going to ask this, but I'll, you can dodge it if you want. So where does Congress fit into this equation? I mean, you, you were at the Senate for a long time. How much did you work with them? How much did they help? Where does Congress fit in? In order to make any real fundamental shifts to how we approach critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, Congress is essential. I think members on both sides understand the threat, understand what we've seen. So you know, in order to make major changes, it will require congressional action. I hope we can all sit down and recognize that we're facing a threat that is evolving and will never go away. One of the pushbacks that you've heard as have I is, well, you can't set standards in cybersecurity because things are always changing. And that's true, but it's also not true. It, it affects the type of standards you set. You don't want to say, turn the lever to 12 and use a 10-inch you know, shovel head. But you can say, make sure that your authentication is secure against most common threats, look to widely accepted. There are ways to build flexible performance baselines. And I think Congress working with the private sector, working with the administration could come up with something for some key critical infrastructure sectors to do that. Hard to predict whether that's going to happen, particularly where we sit now with a midterm election coming. Yeah, I should put in a plug here that our last podcast was with uh, Congressman Langevin. So his departure is a real setback in some ways. Not irreparable, but he was, he was just such a great guy. He knows the history. I was on the House Homeland Security Committee in 2006 through 2008, and, and he and, and Jake Olcott, who you know well, were two of the first people I, I knew talking about cybersecurity as a national security issue. So he has been a phenomenal champion. And, you know, he is as irreplaceable as anyone in Congress on this issue, but I'm hopeful that he will stay engaged and bring his knowledge and voice from the outside. 
One of the things he's uh, proud of is the Cyber Solarium Commission. And it is, it is sort of the, the go-to report for cybersecurity now. What, what effect, if any, did it have on your work? Did you guys read it every night? Did you underline sections? I mean, <laughs> definitely read it. You know, I think there are a lot of great ideas that you've seen implemented whether, you know, I think the review board, you know, the OMCD, Office of National Cyber Director, is in place. I think that the single biggest impact it had was beyond the words, was spurring congressional action and, and building congressional champions for cybersecurity. And, and I'm hopeful that the commission, and as it has continued, can keep using its voice to make sure Congress knows that they are a key player in this. So, that to me was was beyond any particular recommendation was it crystallized an effort uh, within that, that got Congress to move. Some of the, the brightest people on cyber got together and worked on it. But, you know, the, a lot of the ideas in it, and I don't mean this as any knock, but I, I was one point in my career working on a, a report that was written in, and went nowhere. But one of my colleagues said, yeah, in Washington, you have to write something 10 times before anyone pays attention. And, and that's often true of legislation and reports. But the, the commission hit at the right time, hit the right notes, and has been able to build great support for doing important things. So you might remember that we had at their request an event with uh, Ann Newberger and Chris Inglis to show that NCD and NS, NSC were getting along and could work well together. That question still comes up. I mean, what's what's the split, the division of work between NCD and NSC, what you did and what Chris Inglis does? And how's that working out? Because I thought we'd put that issue to rest, but somebody just asked me this last week. So how do you work with NCD? So at the operational level, we work really well. There are one of the one of the, the folks who was on our team working on the executive order, Brian Scott, infrastructure expert, government expert, he left when he left the NSC, he went to the NCD to do the same work. And you know, I'm I'm only sad that Brian isn't sitting right near me physically, so we can work together, but we still work together closely. On the incident response, the regular response meetings, you know, we are working closely together on the infrastructure act, the, the bipartisan infrastructure law. NCD has resources that the NSC simply doesn't have that has allowed us to really dig in to make sure that as we're building new infrastructure, we are considering cybersecurity as, a, as a, you know, the sine qua non of any key infrastructure. I, organizationally, I think it will be helpful, personal view again, a nod to my lawyers back at the NSC, be very <laughs> helpful to have, an, <laughs> to have an executive order in place. But I think that is largely for the outside world to understand the split, more so than it is for us inside government right now. And I know that, that NCD is working on that, but I think that will be a key point in the next step in, in getting that office pointed and, and understood and doing the things. Because even across the federal government, we get that, I get that question sometimes. And usually the answer is to point to the work and then people can see how we're working together, but it'll be nice to have something in writing. That's interesting to hear. I think that I haven't seen it as a problem looking at it from the outside. It, it seems to be in part of it is you have a personal relationship between Chris and Ann have known each other for a long time. So that's a plus. Yeah. And Jim, I'd add also that it's, I think it'd be important for ONCD to define its role vis-a-vis 
the other federal agencies. Because if you look at some of the language in the statute, it's it's similar in a lot of ways to what CISA and the sector risk management agencies do. And I think they've developed a pretty good working split, the agencies mm-hmm. and CISA and ONCD. But that's I think, is going to be important to define those roles because the SRMAs and CISA, it is essential that they have both the authority and the appearance of authority to lead the work that they need to do in their sectors and across the, the cybersecurity landscape as a whole. Maybe going back to the EO for a minute, what was the industry reaction to it? And you could split the industry simply into two parts, the people who write software and then the big contractor community in DC. So just in general, how did, how did people react to this new, new mandate from the White House? So coming from NIST and then for eight years before that in the private sector, I knew the software world well. And I thought it was going to go off like a bomb and just create huge objections. But Me when too. the pieces of it, so, yeah, I mean, I remember the first time I, I saw a full draft and I was like, whoa, <laughs> we're going to be really popular. But yeah. Then when I started talking to folks as the pieces of it came out and we started doing you know sessions to understand the impact, I was pleasantly surprised by the reaction, you know, I would say from larger companies, the majority of them, the, you know, generalizing was, oh, we do these things, these secure practices. So it's going to be a pain in in the butt for us to figure out how to attest to you, but it won't fundamentally change what we do. Then there was some subset of big companies that said, I think we do these, I'm not sure, but if we didn't do this, stuff, we would never say it publicly because that would be admitting, you know, that we don't, you know, don't bathe often. So, so that muted the opposition. The thing that I worried about initially was the impact on small and medium businesses. Are they going to be able to shift? And I did some personal outreach to, to people in that community when the EO came out and, and nothing's unanimous, but with you know, near unanimity, the reaction was, oh, the, the, we're small, we're nimble. This is, if we don't do it, it's not, we can do it. It's not that hard. So that, that, um, and we haven't heard much since then, you know, I'd be interested in talking to my colleagues at at NIST to see what they heard specific to SMBs. But I did one anecdotal story that, that I like a couple months after it came out, a former colleague of mine in the private sector, we're friends and we're talking generally. And this person said, oh, by the way, you know, thanks because I'm spending a ton of money. I didn't have budgeted making sure that that we're meeting all of these security practices. And then the person said, well, you know, we do them anyway, but, you know, it's probably a good thing we're checking. But, you know, this is costing us a lot of money, but you're probably happy to hear that. Well, I'm happy (laughs) to hear that you're really focusing on it. So it was this anger at having to do it, but also a recognition of sometimes it's good to be told to go back and check your homework. In, in the contractor community, I don't have a good sense of, of the feeling there. I, my gut would be, you know, if you work in, in defense or national security space, there are already so many attestations that it might be an easier thing to do. But, you know, some of those organizations, I think, are going to have to ensure and, and put into place potentially some new measures to make sure that they're meeting those baseline security tools. Yeah, I'll say it so you don't have to, but I one of the comparisons is with CMMC, 
And I think the EO actually turns out to be a lot more uh, implementable than CMMC is. Although both are well-intentioned and we all welcome CMMC, it's, it's had some teething problems. Yeah, this really says to any contractor, vendor, provider, you know, the obligation's on you and you're expected to do this and you're now legally required to do this. And if you say you're doing it and you're not doing it, then the liability comes to you. Where does SBOM, what is it, Software Bill of Materials, and our friend Alan Friedman, he's amazing. I was sure he was going to be fired during the previous administration, yet yet he has survived. <laughs> SBOM has actually turned out to be somewhat useful. So what, where, where does SBOM fit into this? Two, two thoughts on, on the importance of SBOM. One of those smaller vendors I was talking to at one point, I was playing devil's advocate and said, well, what do you really care about in SBOM? What's it really going to do? And this was the CISO of this company. And he said, I I always ask for them. And I almost never look at them. But I ask for them because if someone working for for me cannot provide me that level of detail in what they're doing, I'm concerned about their development practices. So, and I tried that out on other people up to, you know, some major healthcare providers and it was a general, yeah, absolutely, that this is something an entity ought to be able to provide if it's, if it's well-organized to develop. So that is something that is important. But then, I mean, Log4j was a, I don't know that there could be a better example of the importance of an SBOM, because if every piece of, of every application out there had some readily accessible SBOM, you know, you could have quickly found out what was using what version of log4j and it would have made it not any easier to respond to because it still would have been enormous but the scoping would have been a lot easier so alan saw that and pushed it for years and and to his credit you know i didn't mention earlier that is part of the executive order in that section four and i think you know log4j really demonstrated why it's important to be able to figure out what you're using because you never know when the next critical vulnerability is going to pop up and some deeply embedded piece of code, whether open source or not. Yeah, it's funny to look at how much of the software still is based on things that four guys wrote in their garage in the early 90s. And Log4j is one, BGP might be another, you know, there's a, there's a legacy software that goes back and probably one of the things that'll be interesting to see is how the how the executive order affects that when people have to say, by the way, we're using open source. What's the sort of White House view on open source? Is it you can't get away from it, everyone uses it, but it fits into a lot of the self-attestation, the SBOM stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you can't get away from it. You have to use it, and there's great utility in using it. It, it is a overall very much a, a net positive. You know, with that said, my wife is a developer and I remember asking her early on, okay, you know, how how significant is this going to be? And she's like, Log4j, it's everywhere. Everyone uses it. And, you know, it's COVID, so she works from home. And, and the few times I was home, she was on, I can't count how many emergency calls updating Log4j and figuring out where they had it. And then when new versions came out, so we, in the White House, we did a couple different, I guess one White House event on open source. And, you know, in the executive order, our view was, of course, developers are going to use it, but when they take it into their 
applications or their suite or however they use it, they are taking on some level of responsibility, if only to do the basic vulnerability checks that they can do automated, but also to understand where and, and how they use it so it, it can be updated. Absolutely no intent to try to write open source out. And then since then, uh, after Log4j, you know, we were looking at working with the community to try to, to improve both the development and, and the curation, for lack of a better mm -hmm. word. But I think that has to be, the government will help as needed, but that has to be led by the private sector, both because that's the right place. And, and that's certainly a place where the government is not going to know best. You know, we, we have to improve the reliability and, and traceability, but also not stifle the type of innovation that comes out of the, you know, four folks in a basement type work. Yeah, it's a different community uh, when you look at the people who make up the open source community. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. We haven't talked about ransomware, which of course is sort of one of the things that marked your tenure. I mean, how do you feel we're doing on ransomware? Uh, boy, open. Um, I mean, ransomware is still epidemic. It is still harming individuals, companies, private organizations, governments across the nation. So we still have a, a lot to do. But I think we've made progress in certain areas, you know, I can touch on. But I also think we need to recognize that ransomware is like any crime. We're never going to stamp it out. If, if we came up with a magic patch to fix ransomware today, these criminal groups would move to other cybercrime and other forms of crime, which means that we need to attack this as, as a business problem, not as a we're going to eradicate it and, and win the war on ransomware. Because winning the war on ransomware, if the criminals evolve and go to a different, equally effective type of theft and, and, and disruption is, is unhelpful, not unhelpful is, you know, doesn't, doesn't accomplish much. Where we've made progress, I think a, a couple of ways, just watching how the government, the various agencies approached it, the, the coordination between the different parts of government, law enforcement, civilian, just across is much better. Shifting a focus toward disruption, understanding that disrupting criminals now particularly if they're criminals who are going to be hard for us to reach is probably a better approach, but at least having the discussions about that, I think has been important. But I think the, one of the things we've really focused on is the financial side. And that goes to the, what I was talking about before is, is ransomware as one type of cybercrime. You know, I, I've, I've talked about internally and, and somewhat externally that we have a counter ransomware effort, but we have to see it as part of the, the overall counter cybercrime effort and the, the financial aspect, the virtual currency abuse is a place where we can have a significant impact and, and Treasury has done really terrific work, partnered with FBI and, and other agencies to understand where to push the buttons. We've designated some virtual currency exchanges Again, none of that is a silver bullet, but all of that hopefully creates more friction, makes it harder for the criminals to monetize, because if they can't monetize, then they're done. One of the, the lines I've used since I was at Semantic is, you know, there is no 100% solution, there is no 50% solution, but if we can put together four or five 10% solutions, we've, we've made a big dent, and I think making it harder for criminals 
to use virtual currency is one of those large incremental improvements. And that's an area where we've made progress. We're looking at what we've learned and are going to involve and, and go forward and also look at are there other points of failure where we can try to interject government efforts to get at the criminals. Flip it. I think it's important that we drive resilience and security among the potential victims. The insurance market can be key here. There, I think as the market has hardened, insurance has become a driver of security. I'm not sure that was always the case. CISA and FBI and NSA have worked together putting out some advisories. And one of the interesting things I've, I've seen tying two seemingly disparate things together, but Ukraine and the ransomware, when we were putting out advisories right after Colonial or elsewhere, you'd see good uptick. But when you have kind of a steady state and the government say, says, hey, here's something to look at, it, you don't get as strong a response. Then when we came forward into into Russia and everyone knew why we were so concerned, at least you know as we got towards the end of the year, you saw a much better response from the private sector. That voluntary piece was much, much more successful. So I think one thing we can learn in the ransomware and other cybersecurity pieces is making sure we're as much as we can tying what we're doing to specific reasons so organizations understand uh, the importance and why it's important. It's not rocket science, but I've, I've seen that play out specifically. Finally, at the same time, balancing that against not flooding the field, because if we're putting out a security alert every couple of days, then it becomes background noise. So, so I got a little bit beyond ransomware there, but... That's okay. I'm going to go a little bit beyond too. This is your big chance to inflame the cryptocurrency community. How much do you think that is something that the White House needs to look at? Or is it, are the agencies, particularly the Treasury Department, moving well along? Treasury and FBI. I know FBI's views on cryptocurrencies, which are strong. What, what do you think? So I'm going to dodge that to some degree. There are folks within the <laughs> cybersecurity director at the NSC who are, who are cryptocurrency experts and then there are those out at the agencies. I will say that virtual currency has a lot of meritorious uses. It is also, to a large degree, the monetization vehicle of choice for the criminals. And we don't want, we, and this is you know me, I personally don't want to crush the virtual currency market because that's just dumb and ineffective. But it is important for the, the entities that work in that space to understand the responsibility they have. And one of the things I think I didn't talk about a few minutes ago, but the increased use of Know Your Customer anti-money laundering compliance programs at these virtual currency, whether it's the exchanges or, or others, has definitely improved because they've seen that government in the United States and governments around the world are, are paying attention. So, you know, if, if we had a virtual currency ecosystem that applied those KYC and AML provisions really effectively, I think you would see the the use of it drop down. And that would be that friction that stand in, in the gears that I talked about. And I know Treasury has looked at different ways to do it, as has FBI, and I'm hopeful that that continues. So I know you spent the last few months really working uh, in overdrive on Ukraine, mainly on defense. To the extent you can talk about what you've done, how, how did Ukraine change your job? <laughs> For a while there, it became our job <laughs> because of concerns that 
how Russia might respond, assuming they invaded further and assuming the U.S. and our allies responded with, with sanctions and other measures, looking at how the Russians could potentially respond. So we became very focused on what can we do to improve, step up, whatever words you want to use, security and key critical infrastructure across the United States and, and with our allies. The CISA was phenomenal when we first engaged with CISA. They had already been thinking about it and had an engagement plan put together. The various agencies, Department of Energy, EPA, Commerce, I'm sure I'm forgetting some, FCC, others, were phenomenal in working within their sectors, getting individual messages out. And so that was really sitting around just thinking about what else could we do? And frankly, answering queries from our most senior leadership, what is left for us to do? What else can we do? How well positioned are we? It's hard for me to parse out in my brain now all the different things that, that we did, but it was really the, the classic team effort. There's no agency that I can think of that didn't go into overdrive. And keep in mind that this is as many of these agencies were dealing with Log4j. And that's actually, that's another, that was in the middle of what we were dealing with that too. So that was, that was fun. It's one of the things that, that I, you asked earlier, the highlights. And, and as I talk, the type of just barriers breaking down of everyone helping out everyone across the agencies, trying to push this forward was really rewarding. Any sense of turf battles largely disappeared and it became very real that we needed to do something. So that was, you know, throughout EPA did some outreach Christmas week. And I think they had six or 700 different water sector entities dial in over the Christmas week. It, it was phenomenal. And you know, cybersecurity, it's hard to measure, but just the, the flood of anecdotal reports back of, of organizations, you know, either deploying new security or, or, or stepping up their filtering. It really, people took it really seriously. And, and we were at the same time trying to understand what was working and come up with new things to make clear that the, this was this was for real and people needed to take it seriously. So I call this kind of a success story so far. I mean, part of it is the, the media probably overrepresented the Russian threat, although the Russians apparently were poking around again. But this is a success story for the administration, Ukraine. I'm not saying that was a puff piece. I'm just seeing if you agree. Yeah. I think um, hopefully, yeah. Yes, the fact that we haven't seen any significant, and I want to knock it on wood next to me here, right. the date significant intrusions that have affected Americans is, I think, success. And, and one thing you can never know is, did we stop things without knowing it? Did we prevent someone from taking an action that they otherwise may have considered doing, whether criminal or nation state, because they saw that, you know, our alert levels were up? You know, if a sophisticated actor doesn't want to get caught and lose tools that they've spent months or years developing. And if they're worried that their target organization is suddenly much more alert, they may not even try. And, and I don't know that we'll ever be able to measure that. But I think, as, as you point out, so far, we haven't seen you know, our, our worst fears come true. You know, Microsoft has done some great work showing that, that Russia has been quite active within the Ukraine. But so far in the homeland, we're doing relatively well. And, and hopefully by the time this airs, nothing, nothing changes that. 
because you know there are always vulnerabilities everywhere, but I think government and private sector made ourselves a harder target, not fully hardened because there probably isn't such a thing, but definitely made ourselves a harder target. And that's actually something, sorry to flip back to ransomware, the one thing that we haven't seen since Colonial and JBS is those types of hits on major critical infrastructure with significant economic impacts. And I think credit goes to the president for raising this with Putin, for making it a, a, a primary administration issue, um, and then to the work of the agencies. And I think that carried into the Ukraine. It is clear that we would not look kindly upon disruption of key critical infrastructure. Yeah, I think that story has not yet come out, but I know a little bit about some of the discussions with Putin, and they were pretty pretty strong, so that was a plus. But you guys were tested in a way that maybe few other administrations have been tested, and that could be just the maturity of the issue. It might be opportunism by opponents because they looked at our record for the last really six or seven years. Could just be bad luck. I mean, might be better monitoring or visibility. Why do you think so many bad things happened the first year of this administration? (laughs) You you did um... well in responding, but it's like... Please, one a quarter is enough, not one a month. Yeah, my second or third day was when Microsoft Exchange Hafnium became public. So it was welcome to the NSC. You know, SolarWinds was ongoing. It may be because we have been very focused on the issue in a very public way. So perhaps that has caused it to get more attention, but between Hafnium and Log4j, and then the three major ransomware. Well, three, and in mind, when I think of the three major ones, it's Kaseya, JBS, and Colonial. And I do not want to minimize the impact that ransomware is having every day on small towns, hospitals, et cetera. But ones that you know reached Oval Office level conversations, or so I'm told. Yeah, it uh, you know it, it maybe the the law of large numbers finally caught up with us been a busy year but you know as things go it hasn't been hasn't actually been it's been well handled i'll just put it that way and so on that note what's next what's next do you think for cyber policy what's next what's next for you so it started with cyber policy what what do you think the, is it just now you've got all this stuff in place and you've got to oversee the implementation or you have to manage the crises or what is there a, still an agenda out there to do more things? The short answer to the last question is yes, there's still an agenda. We also still need to manage the existing, you know, we talked about the National Cyber Director before. ONCD has taken over implementation of the executive order, I should admit, which is another great partnership and handoff because they have capacity to do that, that we don't. So I, I believe that it will be better implemented because they have the staff and resources to focus on it. So that will be an, an ongoing effort. Ransomware, you know, even throughout the Russia-Ukraine, we never stopped having our regular meetings and focusing on it. I think you'll see continued efforts there and hopefully an evolution of, of what the government's doing to try to disrupt the, the criminals, learning from what we've done and watching how they're going because you know, you're only successful as long as the bad guy keeps doing the same thing. So we need to, to watch and evolve. One of the things that we we didn't talk about directly, which I think is an important policy area, is the 
cyber-physical nexus, mm-hmm. managing an incident, understanding early when a cyber incident has physical consequences or could have physical consequences and what those are, and then uh, ensuring that the right agencies are playing the right roles. Colonial was, was eye-opening in the sense that it was a purely IT event that caused the shutdown of critical operational technology. And we need to bake that into our preparation and our thinking and our response planning. And I know that that was something that we worked on really extensively that was very helpful when we started thinking about the Ukraine situation. But that's an area I think that needs further development. But just the cyber authorities we talked about at the beginning, I know DNSA Newberger is very focused on ensuring that our critical infrastructure is as secure as possible and where the market is not pushing security to the level that we we expect and Americans deserve, seeing how we can impact the market and create change to push that security. But in that, I know in the May executive order, there was a assumption or there appears to be an assumption that you weren't going to get authorities in any reasonable time frame. So you had to use existing powers and that's why acquisitions was so attractive. What do you think the long-term prospect is for more authorities? Is it do, usually we need some sort of big crisis to drive people to do anything here? What, what are you looking for when it comes to more authorities? I think the best approach could be targeted, you know, as, working with you a decade ago on the what was then the Lieberman Collins bill, a broad approach to it. You know, again, I personally think some type of broad baseline working with state and local regulators w- would be the best approach. But I think given what you said that we, we usually need an external forcing factor, hopefully Congress would be interested in working potentially on specific elements of, you know, whether I don't want to name any sectors, but areas where potentially we might be able to put some measures in place, maybe because of, of an incident, maybe because we can, for once, be proactive in our thinking. That would be nice. So what's next for you? you this is the end of tour for you, right? You're, you're, when are you done? I am done with the National Security Council towards the end of June and will be leaving government uh, early July. Huh. So back to the... Uh, back to the uh, civilian world. Do yes. you want to keep it a secret or do you want to say where you're going? So I will be going to the Aspen Institute to to lead their cybersecurity programs as part of the Aspen Digital. Very excited to have some time to hopefully take a lot of the lessons and or to learn lessons from all the things that we've worked on over the past 15 months and before. And cyber physical is one of the big ones on my mind, but it's a great opportunity for me to hopefully take some of, of what I've done and what I've seen and try to turn it into to, to practical solutions, both for private sector companies and, and for the government. So I will, I will be on the ground with Aspen by the time of their next cyber meeting and the Aspen Security Forum mid-July. So I'm very excited and, and hopefully keep engaged with, with, with you and other experts in the field. Yeah, no, it's a great addition to the think tank community, which doesn't have a deep bench of experience. So congratulations on that. Did we miss anything? Thank you. Yeah. Nope. I just should say, you know, Jim, thanks to you for the support you've given to me and to Anne and to the NSC 
this past year and before, having a trusted voice on the outside who can tell us when we're either on or off track is is invaluable. <laughs> uh, there's only been a couple of times when you've been off track, so great job. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> on, on that note, Jeff, thanks for doing the podcast. Have a good trip to RSA. We will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks again for the opportunity to be here. It's been a lot of fun and appreciate the opportunity. Great. See you soon. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.